Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And in thinking seriously, we want to cultivate, encourage, promote certain particular virtues in mind. And those are uh, cheerful confessionalism, curiosity, critical thinking, and wow, I just set them out of order, so now I've forgotten them. So typically I say charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Not sure which one I missed, but one thing I want to mention before we get into this episode is I was talking with my friend Ian Clary, and he was just giving me a hard time about how curiosity in the tradition is not a virtue, it's a vice. And I'm like, okay, I need to clarify what I mean by curiosity in case any of you nerds out there are thinking that. When we talk about curiosity, we're talking about a posture that is just open to reason and willing and interested in making friendships with people who are different than us. So it's not a vain curiosity. It's a posture, I think, of charity toward the other. So I think those are the sort of vibes that we want to give off with the podcast, with our online presence and all over the place, because what we've noticed uh, in our own intellectual culture is that there is a lack of these things. So we hope to encourage them. We may not always perfectly display them, but as we seek them out, as we promote them, hopefully the Lord is gracious in growing us in those sort of things. So for this particular episode, I'm very excited. It's another episode of the Hanover House, and we have Dr. David Hogg and Dr. Steve McKinnon with us. You're both professors of church history, and you can give me your full titles if you want. So Dr. McKinnon is an expert in patristic theology. Dr. Hogg is an expert in medieval theology. Dr. Hogg is at Phoenix Seminary in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, one of my favorite cities. And we're also joined by Cody Float and Garrett Walden, who are both members of the London Lyceum. Garrett does all our book review edits, and Cody does all of our Old Testament and biblical exegesis-related editorial work. So those are great brothers. So before we jump in, let me level set. We're talking how do we retrieve old sources when it comes to theology? So when you think about that, you think questions of what is theological retrieval? Why should we do that? I mean, when you think bygone eras, patristic, medieval era, not a lot of pastors think that that's valuable. And then we'll move into thinking about how do we do that practically? What are some resources and how? what are some habits that might lead us into that? So how about to lead us off, Dr. Hogg, from your own experience and study, when you think about theological retrieval, how would you go about defining that? And then Dr. McKinnon, you could jump in after and let us know if you if you disagree or agree with Dr. Hogg or you'd expand or nuance it in any way. Yeah, great question. And I appreciate you allowing me to go first so Dr. McKinnon can make sure all my errors are corrected. I like that. I, I appreciate that kind of backup. Uh, that's important to have. Um, you know, when I thought it was, when I think about theological or even historical retrieval, um, I think about what the church has always done. This is not something, this is not something new. I think like you, sometimes you can you know, pick a book off the shelf. There's several, um, you know, that are floating around out there that talk about historical uh, retrieval, theological retrieval. Someone might be forgiven for thinking this is brand new. We've never done this before. When in fact, the way the church has always operated <clears throat> is uh, is to look to the past and look to those theologians, those pastors, those apologists of the past and and draw on what they have gifted to us and use those in the present for ministry uh, in, in its various contexts and then help us to continue guiding us in the historic Orthodox faith. So, you know, theological retrieval is, as, as I say, it's not something brand new. It's something that rightly understood the church has always done and should continue doing, which is why I think it's an emphasis today, because certainly uh, in a lot of churches today, at least in my experience, a lot of churches, you'll find people uh, who who are unaware of history. Um, I, I'll never forget, I was at a church in Alabama, and I was teaching uh, some church history on a Wednesday night. The pastor had asked me to do this, and there were uh, there was I was walking down the hall, and this this lady happened to be walking down the hall with me, and she said, "You know, I'm so excited to learn about the history of the church." She said, "But I was I was I was telling my mother, you know, this is really great. I get to learn about the history of the church." And and she said, "My mother paused and said, well, your church has only been around for 20 years. How long does it take to talk about the history of the church?'" <laughs> 
And and she said, no, mom, I'm talking about like the history of like the whole church. And her mother had no concept of what she was talking about. She, and I mean, a believer, somebody who understood the church had, you know, grown up in the church. She only thought of church history as individual congregations. They do their thing for however long and, and there's no relationship anymore. So <clears throat> that may be a bit of an extreme example, but, uh, but it's 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 something that we need to keep bringing before people's minds, if if that makes sense. Christians have always um, sought to learn from those who have come before them as a way to listen to the community of faith. That it's not, you know, retrieval is is learning and listening. Several of the problems that we have in a contemporary context is in the free church tradition, um, we we tend to operate from this. Um, mistaken notion that there was a, a primitive, pristine time of uh, Christian living and theological reflection that got lost at some point and uh, then either has been rediscovered or needs to be rediscovered. And so we kind of see ourselves as jumping over the last 2,000 years with our reason this kind of sense of soul competency where I can go back to the Bible and me and the Holy Spirit can read the Bible together and I can recapture this, this pristine, primitive time um, without recognizing that time never existed. Um, you know, sometimes when, when students say, I, I want my church to be like a New Testament church, um, I ask them if they've ever read the New Testament. Because the, the churches that are referenced in the New Testament are not churches any of us would want to be a part of, uh, and certainly that someone would not want to pastor. I mean, Paul is just regularly struggling. Forget about the, the ethical and practical problems, the theological issues that he contends with. And that's what we see in scriptures. We see in the New Testament in particular is we see the misappropriation of um, theological understanding in so many churches and becomes the occasion for, for uh, so many of these New Testament texts to say, let's understand Christ according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament, from the vantage point of the gospel. So with that in mind, then, instead of saying, let's jump back over 2,000 years of everybody getting it wrong and get back to a place where everybody had it right, it is what what is the teaching of the apostles this faith once for all delivered to the saints christ according to the scriptures christ according to the old testament and in early christianity um and and which is my area but the same thing would be true in the middle ages or beyond is you're looking in what ways is there an engagement with scripture um that is intended to re uh, affirm this particular faith and then to live that faith out it's not where where can we look back to a time when everybody had it right. So what happens with patristics is that you run into this kind of earlier is better mentality, and that becomes another challenge for us. It's like, well, the, the people closest to the New Testament must have had it all right, and then it just gets worse over time, and, and which isn't the case at all. Earlier isn't always better. Earlier isn't always right. And so we, we're faced with the same challenge, right, that in retrieval— we're having to learn to listen and to observe um, engagement with Scripture. And what framework uh, are those who are engaging with Scripture coming from? And so to, to understand that there is in early Christianity this, this firm commitment to Jesus according to the Old Testament, this is the Christ according to the Old Testament, um, in which he is the self-revelation of God, and he is the locus of uh, God's reconciliation of humanity to himself, there become some firm commitments that people have to make theologically and practically. So retrieval has to look something like um, learning not merely the conclusions, but the methodology um, that reads the scriptures in such a way that the gospel coming from those scriptures makes sense. Because the scriptures are the source of the gospel. It's not like Jesus started some new thing where he's walking around giving some teaching, and then we have to go back and apply that to the Old Testament. Uh, the scriptures read in a particular fashion is what gives us the gospel. And so we have to then go, look back and say, how can we engage in scripture in this same manner where the, the, the gospel that we know is true, 
um, that comes from these scriptures actually actually makes sense. What would you say to the pastor who already feels overwhelmed with all of the different uh, pastoral concerns that's going on in his church today, and, and something like retrieval just doesn't seem uh, to be that high on his priority list? So that's like part one of the question. But then maybe part two is... Once this pastor is convinced that retrieval is a, a you know something worthy of of his participation and it should be something that he spends time doing, how would you say that he could apply that at the local church level? Some ways that he could uh, involve the church as a whole into the the process of retrieval. Everybody's going to read something, and so choosing what you're going to read as a pastor or that you're going to recommend people read in the church becomes a starting place. And uh, you, you know you can't read two thousand years worth of theological reflection in a weekend um, or a lifetime. So you have to you have to pick and choose where where is it that I'm going to give my attention and that I'm going to turn to. Um, who are the biblical interpreters and um, the, the the writers that I want to uh, give my give my time to? That's number one. Number two is scripture itself has to be engaged in than proof texting and biblicism, uh, where the the scriptures, these writings are intended to be read, is is a big start with regard to retrieval. It's not just who we're going to read, who has been engaging with scripture and doing theological reflection. It's actually engaging with scripture in the way in which um, Christians have, have done that historically, and not merely reading the Bible in order to, uh, you know, get get a couple of uh, handy helps for how I'm supposed to be living my life, or you know, what are the five steps to the happy home, and and that sort of thing. But reading the Bible as God's, as the locus of God's self-revelation, um, and engaging it with it in in that kind of fashion, that becomes a starting place, just a commitment to to engage with the Bible in in that way. Yeah, actually, I think. Um... Uh, yeah, I agree with with all of that. Certainly, the, on well, perhaps one way um, that would be helpful for a pastor, and of course, every pastor's got to decide where their congregation is at. I think that's an important question to ask first. Where Where are my people at? What can they handle? What can they not handle? What would throw them for a loop? What would not? Um, <clears throat> but for example, like just just thinking is the creeds. So take the Apostles' Creed and think right. If you're in, if you're in, uh, in a uh, rural North Carolina, or I would say rural Arizona, but it's entirely rural. Um, it's, <laughs> if you're somewhere, you know, wherever you are, and let's say you've got a, a, a small congregation and wonderful Christians, uh, but they nobody's ever heard of the Apostles' Creed. They don't engage it. They're not used to it. Whatever. But you'd think, you know, I think they're ready for this. Um, you know, teaching through the Apostles' Creed, just taking each of those statements, using them as a as a basis for, as as, as Steve is saying, engaging Scripture um, in a way that is saying, "Look, this was written centuries and centuries and centuries ago, and and look, this is this is what the Bible is teaching. So this is helping us." But the other thing, in terms of the practical outworking of that, is so so when you get to you can tell your congregation before, tell them after, but help them see, you know, when if you as we go through this creed. Uh, you are going to begin, as we go over it each week and keep repeating it and keep thinking about it, it gives you a way to organize your thoughts about how to talk to someone about the gospel. I mean, this, you know, one of the things that I think in churches people are always worried about is, okay, how can I be thoughtful in talking to someone about the gospel? A lot of people are afraid to share the gospel. They say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know where to start. If they ask me a question, what do I say? Well, something like the creed is a, is provides a sort of outline. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe about, you know, Jesus' uh, death and resurrection? And, and what do you believe about the future? I mean, there's, you know, off the top of my head, there, there's kind of the, the Apostles' Creed in a way. So, so it, it helps people actually formulate in their heads, oh, I know this. Now I can speak about it. And I don't have to feel like I'm recreating the wheel and coming up with a new system for remembering how do I tell someone, you know, the elevator speech, if you got, you know, the usual thing, you got three minutes, you got 30 minutes, you got three hours, you know, how are you going to talk about things? Well, if you've got the, the uh, one of the creeds in your head and you've got three minutes just, you know, over the fence with a neighbor, at the very least, it allows you to say, here's, here's basically why we go to church. Here are the things that, you know, here's what we're, here's what we're, we're doing there. So I think in, in, in that sort of very basic way. Uh, it can be 
immediately practical for for a pastor who's trying to get his congregation to engage the world around them. That's good. Cody, do you have any questions? Because I know, I mean, you're you're in the biblical exegesis world. What comes to your mind? Yeah, I think the question that I always think about is revolves around kind of frameworks for discernment. So when I was doing my MDiv, it was very easy to hear um, kind of jabs at figures like origin for, you know, allegorical interpretation, etc. So for me as a biblical studies guy wanting to retrieve even a lot of that good and faithful interpretation, um, my question would be what are kind of frameworks that you all use for discerning what, um, yeah, like what interpretation is helpful, what moves are made by patristic theologians that ought to be retrieved as we think about preaching, teaching, exegeting texts, whether it be Old or New Testament. Um, I'd love to hear you all speak to that. This desire to proclaim Christ through an exposition of Scripture from the perspective of the gospel is governed by um, these various rules of faith or canons um, that become the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, etc., all of which are derived from um, our confession and baptism. Right, Athanasius calls Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20 the scopos of Scripture. Right, it's the summary of the, the message of the Bible, which is the gospel. Um, and so, um, by, by adjudicating our reading of, of other theologians, and let's just say uh, ancient theologians, um, by they, um, how they are consistent with and engage Scripture from the perspective of these rules of faith, these canons of truth, these creeds, um, then we can better recognize not just what they're concluding, but, but probably even more importantly, the means by which they're trying to draw these, these conclusions. And so you, you take someone, you mentioned Origen, and you, you take Origen and you look at what he actually says, and you find out he's laying out these first principles of th- these are the fundamentals of the faith. It's, it's the rule of faith. It's the, the Apostles' Creed that he lays out and says, this is what we believe. Now, let's see, what are the implications of this being the case? Uh, implications maybe aren't always, whether it's Origen or myself or, or whomever, um, you know, aren't always the implications and the conclusions that one wants to draw. But what what we're learning by engaging with those ancient writers is we're learning how ourselves to engage with Scripture from the the, the vantage point of these creedal formulations, the rules of faith, um, these these statements, which they themselves have come from the Scriptures. And so, if we start with Matthew twenty eight eighteen nineteen and twenty, this uh, these baptismal formulas, we see in ancient writers their own commitments to those things, which is what. Uh, Irenaeus, for example, says with regard to the Gnostics. I mean, this is this is the real problem, right? That they're they're gaining some type of knowledge and truth that's inconsistent with the uh, the the canon of truth, the rule of faith, our our baptismal uh, confession. Um, and so, by reading ancient writers who uh, receive and confess this same faith, we can know we're on the same team. We're trying to accomplish the same thing. And uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't just discard them any more than we're going to discard a fellow pastor or a fellow theologian that's a contemporary that may see things uh, here or there in a, in, in a bit of a different light. One thing that keeps kind of going through my mind, um, I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's Discarded Image, which, you know, that's that is that's a book everyone should read. So there you go. There's your there's your weekend plan for you. Um one of the things he says in that book is that, and I'll have to paraphrase, I don't have it memorized, but basically he says, uh, we in the modern world have a habit of assuming that the way we see the world is the correct view. And everyone before us has, to some degree, an, an increasing or decreasing amounts, has got it wrong. And we kind of laugh at them, you know, especially in our, I mean, he was right in the mid-20th century, but I mean, for us, even more so now in a, you know, if it's not scientific, if it's not technological, if it's not these sorts of things... Well, what a crazy way to view the world, you know, that's that sort of thing. And, and Lewis's point is to say, we need to understand that that no, uh, I don't think he uses this word, but I'll use it. No worldview is 
fully fictional and no worldview is fully truthful. I mean, there are there are elements of both constantly wrestling with each other. And and so I think when 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 people in, in our day and age think about reading somebody like Origen or someone like Athanasius or someone like Aquinas or someone like Augustine or <clears throat> of course we're all reading Anselm, but you know, whatever whoever we're reading from from the past, we tend to think, well, it's almost and the initial thought is to be condescending. I mean, no one's trying to be, of course, but that sense of well, they're they're just they didn't understand the way the world works, or their way of dealing with scripture is different, or their way of approaching things. And instead of recognizing with a degree of humility, well, I don't have the I don't have the corner on it all either, and I don't understand it all either. So why don't I just read this person and and kind of just begin swimming in their you know in in, in 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 their in the same swimming pool they're swimming in and just get the feel for the currents that are coming and going get a feel for the temperatures of things that matter and don't matter let's just you know get that to get that sense of what's going on and then that i think itself helps us to a degree not perfectly but it helps us begin to appreciate what we can learn and take from say origin as you mentioned Cody or to say yeah origin missed it and this particular, like, I just can't get past, you know, X, whatever it is. Um, so I think there's there's something there of of recognizing the difference, recognizing it in a way that does not assume that we've constantly progressed and we're just a better people now than we were, you know, 1700 years ago. Um, and And then allowing the possibility that someone could teach me something, even though I'm not sure what it might be. So Garrett's had to step out so he has sent a a a question via text message so i'm going to read that here uh this is for for both of you guys uh he says john henry newman famously said to be deep in history is to cease to be protestant do you doctors hogg and mckinnon ever feel your protestant identity or baptist identity threatened by your historical study or maybe another angle, we've seen a lot of our friends abandon Baptist identity often for Anglicanism or Roman Catholicism because they feel a necessity to be rooted in the great tradition, whether genetically, liturgically, or for some other reason. Should we try to talk them out of that? Can we? Or is this uh, even an either-or situation? Well, uh, I'm glad he had a nice, short, concise question. I appreciate that. Um so this is, for me, that's a fascinating question because um, while I was the academic dean at Beeson Divinity School, I actually watched this happen again and again and again, where we'd have students come in uh, into the MDiv program and uh, and they would they would be there for, for a year, maybe a year and a half, two years, and then and then they would want to leave. And it was, it was usually independent or Baptist um, backgrounds and, and denominations and become Anglicans. Um, and there's a whole host of things that were going on there, but uh, <clears throat> one of the, I mean, exactly right. One of the the issues at stake was they wanted to feel like they were part of this 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 tradition of two thousands of years and so forth. And and it's intriguing to me because uh, some of what what I saw there was that they, they the students would struggle to understand how being a Baptist was still connected with the rest of the, the great, you know, the, the great tradition, uh, the Orthodox, historic Orthodox faith, um, because they had so long lived in congregations where that just didn't exist. It wasn't known. So for them coming to seminary, it was this whole new idea. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think it was helped along by the fact, it must be said that at Beeson, there were some really great professors who were Anglican. And of course, students want to follow them and engage them and be, you know, be just like them. I mean, you know, and they should be. Um, and so there was that, that personal pull as well. But it was fascinating to me that there was, there was always that wrestling with, but that's never, my whole tradition that I grew up in ignored, denied, or I was just, just let it slide that we are part of this. And whereas the Anglican tradition, in, in the cases that I knew, um, more self-consciously connects with that. And I just want to, I want to do that easily. I don't want to have to go back to a congregation that still is fighting against that or disagrees with it or doesn't know it. And I have to kind of start from the ground up. I'd like to just slide right in with what's already going on within the, with a different tradition. So <clears throat> I, I have seen it. Um, and, and I've seen people, it's interesting. I've seen people go, from from Baptist to Anglican and then back to Baptist again. 
Um, and again, not because there's any particular evils going on in the Anglican world, but I think they've, they've come to the realization that, well, there are certain theological convictions that I just am not willing to let go of. And, and so I need to, I need to go back to, to, to the, my, my Baptist roots and so forth. But, um, but even there at Beeson, when we had students moving from Baptist uh, congregations to Anglican, uh, the Anglican communion, um, even there, they, they, over time, they did have to admit, you know, really, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't affect my Protestantism. I don't feel there's any, you know, like there, we never, while I was there, there was never a case of someone becoming Roman Catholic and saying, well, that's where the tradition really is. Um, there was a recognition, rightly so, that apostolic succession, properly understood, is a succession of the truth of the gospel held by the faithful of God's people. It's not the succession of a person. It's not the succession of an office, i.e. the Pope. Um, it, is a, it is a succession of, of theological truth and gospel commitment and so forth. And so for that reason, it, it, you know, that sort of obliterates some of this, to some degree some of the denominational lines and saying, well, okay, now I'm beginning to get it. This really is about who who is it that is professing um, you know, to, to steal from the ancient church, you know, professing the rule of faith. Who is it that is consistent with the, the summary of doctrine that we've derived from scripture? And, and that's, that's the tradition I really want to be a part of. So I don't, I don't know if that answers the question quite. And Brandon, you'll have to, you'll have to channel, uh, Garrett for us here, but, um, I don't know if that answers the question, but those are some thoughts that come to mind. I've gone at Southeastern, uh, for going on now 25 years. And, uh, we have, as well, had a number of students um, in teaching patristics that um, have decided they wanted to, um, you know, become uh, Typically, uh, those students that I'm familiar with <clears throat> um, who become, let's say, Anglican, which, which again, would be the, the predominant choice, um, is because they see in in Anglicanism, um, their perception at least is that there's a deeper theological tradition. And even if they want to become Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox because they're enamored with some of those things, it's maybe a little too far to go. And so Canterbury is a lot closer than Constantinople. And so they say, well, I think I'll do this. But it's still, it, there's a perception that there's greater theological depth there that I don't I don't think in reality they necessarily see. I mean, generally, the people who are at church every Sunday, they're not reading the fathers and spending time in, you know, deep theological reflection. Um, it, it's more than anything a sense of uh, connection to things from the past. Um, most of these students come out of chur uh, churches, in, in my experience here, come out of churches that uh, are either the mega church kind of independent type model that, uh, you know, very contemporary settings, um, or there are churches that um, maybe in a, a clergy that's not too uh, educated, you know, pastors that, that maybe they come out of a very uh, incredibly rural setting in the Deep South or whatever, and they're just looking for a different experience. They they like the sense of community. They like this feeling of they have some connection to the past. When I when I finished my PhD in patristics, uh, I, I was in the UK at, at Aberdeen, and it it never crossed my mind that studying patristics meant that I wasn't supposed to be a Baptist. This is this is the tradition that formed me, that that provided me with uh, this foundation for the faith. And there's a sense of historical recovery that says Baptists didn't just invent these things out of the blue. There there is there is a connection to the great tradition, even if it's not recognized or celebrated. And part of what I've tried to do um, as, as someone who reads uh, the, the church fathers and mothers and teaches them very regularly here at Southeastern, at Trinity, at Southern in the past, and, and all has been to introduce people to their own tradition. And so it's not that one needs to move from one tradition to another in order to connect more faithfully to the great tradition. It's to discover how your tradition is itself an heir and participant within the great tradition. And so it's not even a, well, why don't you stay a Baptist so you can fix all the rest of us that just don't, you know, we're just not good enough. We don't, you know, we don't have a real good understanding of theology or whatever. It's no, the reason why 
Baptists do the things that they do is because there is this long tradition, and it's their way of participating in and expressing the great tradition. So, you know, again, it's never crossed my mind that would be necessary. I've had a number of students that have gone to other traditions and and, and a number who have come back. Um, and it doesn't make them uh, kind of more or less Protestant um, by making some of those moves, um, even though, you know, for, for some, there's the sense is um, in order that I'm, I'm not supposed to have a tradition or a history, which isn't Protestantism at all. Um, it, it's not even, you know, the reformers. I mean, this even the radical reformers believed that there was something from the past that they could draw from. So, you know, I think I think by helping people in their contemporary context, students in particular, who are always looking for something new anyway, to discover how their tradition, whether it's a free church tradition, um, a, a you know, continental tradition or whatever, finds its faithful expression in and with the great tradition probably is the is the greater help. So a question I have for both of you, uh, I mean, this one's geared, I think, more towards pastors who have a regular preaching ministry. What are the top resources you would recommend for them? So this could be either biblical exegesis or theology from both for you, Dr. McKinnon, the patristic era, and for you, Dr. Hogg, the medieval era. And I'll add one question for you, Dr. Hogg, just to make it fun. Um, do any medievals actually do biblical exegesis? Is that even a category for them? I mean, it seems like they just talk about abstract philosophical doctrines, right? You're killing me. You're killing me. Oh, this is terrible. I see what it is. This was this was all set up to persecute me and the entire medieval church. A thousand years of people. No, but it's a common question. You're exactly right, Jordan. I mean, it's um, do they do exegesis? And and um, the the answer is, I think exactly. I, I tell students all the time when they're wrestling with the messiness of church history, whether it's in the ancient period, medieval period, Reformation period. That when they're wrestling with it, I, one of the ways I try and help them uh, understand things, I say, really, the church is no different at any point in history. In other words, it's always messy. And so what, what I mean, in, as I re- apply to your question, is, yes, you can absolutely go to examples in the medieval period of really good exegesis. You can go read some really great sermons. You know, all of these, uh, they, I mean, they wrote... Uh, um, you know, books trying to train people how to preach. There were, I mean, also there was a renaissance of this, you know, in the ninth century. I mean, all of this sort of thing is going on. But there are also people at the same time going about pastoral ministry who may have been great pastors, able to, to sit with people, one-on-one engagement and so forth. But, you know, when they gave their, when they gave their sermon, you just knew that's 30 minutes, you're never getting back again. Uh, you know, it's just not their, it's, it's not what they do well. So that's that's true today, and and that was true in the Middle Ages, and 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 today we can find great exegetes who are doing good biblical work, and uh, we can find some many of them that were thinking no, we wouldn't touch them with a ten foot pole. Um, same thing is true in the Middle Ages. Um, one thing that is a little bit different in the Middle Ages than the, the modern day, certainly, and I, I would I would apply this. Uh, Steve will have a different take, doubtless. I'd apply this to the ancient church as well. Is is in our day, and and this is now breaking up again because of self-publishing and social media and so forth, but at least for a while, you had had a position called an editor who was responsible to a publisher. And what that meant is an editor could say to somebody who's, who's trying to publish something, this is terrible. I'm sorry, but we had two blind readers read this and there's no way we're publishing it. Or an editor to go back and say, some great material here, but wow, this is, this needs a lot of work. Middle Ages, ancient church, there's no such thing as an editor. You just, if you could write something and, and afford the, 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 you know, the, uh, the papyrus or whatever it was you're going to write on, you know, the vellum, if, if you could afford that, you could afford the ink, you could afford everything else, then you wrote. And it's going to, you know, it's probably going to be part, and there's so little of that going on in the ancient medieval period. Well, in, more in the medieval period, obviously, but that we just sort of hang on to everything we have. And, and so sometimes it can look like, well, the quality control during the, the, these periods before the, the printing press doesn't look as good. Well, no, it wasn't because we, we don't have those editors. So you do get a mix. Now, I suppose you could also argue 
editors or not, there's still a lot of bad stuff floating around today, which is true. Um, but there is, you know, like there, there are certain works that I'll read and I just think, wow, an editor would have been great. Um, because there's, there's sections here that just, you know, need a little, need a, you know, need to be pulled out and dealt with on their own or not dealt with at all. So, so yeah, on, on the, uh, on the exegesis front, I'll, I'll say that. I mean, the, you know, a good example of, uh, those who cared about exegesis in the middle ages, the Victorines, um, you know, if anyone's is interested in that, in you know, a reading on, uh, it's, it's an, it's a work from the 1960s. I think 64 was the first year it was published, but Beryl Smalley wrote a book called the, the study of the Bible in the middle ages. And she was, she was actually at the forefront in the 20th century of saying, Hey, wait a minute. And, and I don't know what her theological convictions were or where she stood with respect to the faith at large, but just as an historian, she said, hold on a minute here. We need to make sure we understand that there were people really wrestling with Scripture in in responsible ways. Um, yeah, you can always find irresponsible. YouTube is full of present day irresponsible preaching, and and had it existed in the Middle Ages, yeah, we could fill up YouTube with those as well. But there certainly was responsible exegesis, responsible uh, preaching, and so forth. So, so yeah, to your point, it's people ask that all the time, and and I think they ask it. Uh, in part because you know, just there's a misunderstanding of of again to steal from C.S. Lewis our time versus their time, but also I think I mean how many people have actually sat down and read several sermons that were written in the Middle Ages? The vast I mean like I'm I mean I'm probably the only guy like let's be honest there's like three of us in the world right I mean it's just not it's just not done and part of it's because a lot of this this stuff is still in Latin. Um, but uh, but it's there. And so to some degree, that question is also usually asked, not in your case, Jordan, clearly, but in other cases, it's asked out of just plain ignorance. Like there's that idea of, well, I've never read anything. I've never heard. So I'm just dealing with what, you know, basically whatever I've received from people who also haven't read, um, you know, what's going on. So on at least that front, I'll, I'll say that. I don't know if you wanted to respond, Jordan, and 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 defend the evils of the, of the medieval myth. I will not defend uh, any th- the evils of medieval <laughs> interpretation. I just want, give me two or three examples that say, if you're a pastor, these would probably be worth your time going and buying and reading. And maybe you'd say, they're mm. still in Latin. That's fine. You can, that'll, that'll tell our <laughs> students who are listening, oh, that's what I should go do a dissertation on and translate their work so it can be made available to other pastors. Yeah. Um, so actually, there's um, I have I've suggested this particular book. It came out uh, maybe four years ago or so. It's called Introducing Medieval Biblical Interpretation by Christopher. I, I pronounce it Levy. I don't know if it's Levy or Levy, but um, he's written a bunch of stuff. All very good. But Introducing Medieval Biblical Interpretation is a great entree into this, um, especially if you've been to seminary uh, and and you've already got a few of the categories. But it, it he he deals well with this with this idea and and so that's that's one uh, that I would suggest. Another one is called an introduction to uh, the medieval Bible, and just helping people understand you know okay what is how is the Bible understood uh, how is it dealt with how is it treated how is it interpreted um, and uh, so those are those are two books that I think at least written by modern day scholars that are, are really helpful for pastors or seminary students uh, who are looking for some way to begin to wrestle and grapple with the question of medieval exegesis, hermeneutics, and what in the world are they doing with the Bible? Um, you know, I think, I think medieval biblical interpretation uh, is quite easy. That's like a two-page book, so it's not hard to read. Um, it would be, I'm only kidding. So, yeah, it's, you know, here, so here's the thing when it comes to patristics, right? is um, fortunately, this is both the good and the bad. So it's a blessing and a curse that uh, over the last 25 years, a lot of, of evangelicals have taken an interest to patristics for a whole host of reasons. Um, and that means that there is this, um, you know, what, what had been a dearth of a publication outside of uh, Roman Catholic context, um, in the West at least, uh, now it, they're, they're just volumes all over the place and everybody has, uh, and, and is trying to, uh, retrieve, uh, you know, Dan Williams has done a great job kind of leading the way on, on retrieval for, for the last 25 or so years, um, as a, as, as a Baptist teaching, uh, for the longest time in a, in a Roman Catholic context. 
Um, and so there's there's some great things. So retrieving uh, the tradition and renewing evangelicalism, which was his early um, uh, contribution to retrieval, was good. But here's the problem that for the most part, the translations of patristic texts, which are um, and there are tens of thousands of patristic texts that we have extant in Greek, Latin, Syriac, uh, Old Georgian, I mean, a whole host of things. But the, the uh, texts that have been translated, say, in the early, the, the early Church Fathers series, Anti-Nicene, Nicene, and Post-Nicene Fathers, tended to be those texts that were more polemical. Um, it was uh, yeah, because this is what people like, right? Or they, what they liked, at least, is they liked these polemical works, which were dogmatic. Um, and so the the vast majority of of, uh, of which there, again, are thousands of examples in, from the ancient church, remain untranslated. Um, now, thankfully, uh, there's been a lot of work done uh, in translating these these biblical texts. So the commentary material is, and the reason why, and this is great, this is the blessing part of this, is that evangelicals love the Bible. And so evangelicals want not to simply read these dogmatic and polemical texts, you know, letters where people are, are accusing each other of heresy and that sort of thing. They want to read the material that is the engagement with Scripture. And so sometimes you read something from, say, Cyril of Alexandria in the 5th century, in one of his polemical texts, you think, where's the Bible in all of this? And he's got, you know, 10 volumes in the Patrologia, most of which are biblical commentaries. And now you start reading the, the biblical commentaries, you think, oh my goodness, this is the basis of, of these dogmatic works, but you're not able to get to them because they're just in Greek or in a, in a Latin translation. So a couple of things that I would recommend, uh, there is the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series, that Tom Oden uh, oversaw. Very good series. It's in paperback now, a whole lot easier to get to um, and and to make available to people, which is good. It's a good introduction. Um, these aren't commentaries themselves. They're just an entree into various commentary material. Uh, the um, popular patristic series, small paperback volumes that are uh, oftentimes sermons and even some, some commentary material, um, which is another uh, another great uh, great place to go to kind of get an introduction to the the text themselves. Um, you can find these things online, but what what happens for a lot of, of evangelicals in particular is they get bogged down in the in the polemics and don't ever get to the the engagement with scripture as it were. So you know the ancient Christian commentary, like I said, is a start. Some of these new translations that are coming in in English, Robert Hill, of course, is is a, a leading translator and has did um, so many of those. So those would be some some good places to start. Dan Williams retrieving uh, the tradition and renewing evangelicalism. While the scholarship is quite dated, uh, the model of retrieval, I think, is still of benefit. And then some of his subsequent um, outworking and, and explanation of those things as well. One, one final one I would mention is uh, John Baer, uh, who is not an evangelical, um, but who is at Aberdeen now, um, just did a critical edition and new translation a couple of years ago of Origins on First Principles, um, in which he kind of unpacks some of the problems uh, relative to uh, previous critical editions and then provides a theological introduction and um and a translation, and it is quite, quite good. Um, and I would recommend anyone who's interested in seeing what the, the early church fathers were trying to do with the Bible to uh, look at his on first principles would be a great, a great start. Awesome. And one final question I want to ask you both. You can keep this, think 60 seconds, and I want you to think on your feet for this a little bit. So We've got a lot of students who listen to the podcast. They may be MDiv students, or maybe they hopefully are going to—they're doing an MA or something, or they're hopefully doing PhD work. What would you say is an area that students who are either interested in patristic for you, Dr. McKinnon, or medieval for you, Dr. Hogg, what's an area or person they should go study that's not been studied? And then number two, what is a habit that they should develop now that will help them when that time comes to begin studying and researching those areas? Good question. Um, so as I think about medieval studies and where, where students could invest time that I think would be uh, really 
um, there's, well, there's, there's, there's plenty to be done. Um, actually, three things come to mind. So there you go. We've got three PhD theses coming straight out in the next five years. Um, one would be, as I mentioned before, the Victorines. You know, I think uh, looking at 12th, 13th century French um, scholarship and and uh, mining that for all it's worth, I think, is still uh, still still valuable. Um, second, I think there's and, and again, evangelicals don't naturally go in this direction, so this is perhaps a bit of a more of a challenge. But um, the uh, the 14th and 15th century English mystics. Um, you know, it's it is interesting to me that uh, the you know people will look at the mystics and think, well, they're they're crazy people, um, and some of them were crazy people. Let's just call it what it is. But there were others who, like you know, you'll you'll get some theologies, you know, works written by some of these mystics, and it's really interesting because when you examine the structure of the work they're writing, they're actually it looks like they're copying old old theology texts. So in other words, they're actually they're actually doing theology um, in a way, and so there's something to be said for that. And then you know, third, I think it's worth, I think an area that's still underserved. It was when uh, when I was thinking about PhD studies, and still is is, is the uh, the Waldensians, the so-called heretics, um, you know, driving out of northern Italy. I think there's a lot there in terms of just how they began to to question you know basic theological tenets about what is the ministry, who is a pastor, who can be a pastor, what is baptism, what is the Lord's Supper? And they came to some some very different views than their than the you know the Roman church was saying. So so those would be three areas that I think would be uh helpful for study. And then um uh, you know what is a, a practice that uh students can be doing now? Um I would I think it's just it's so obvious. It almost doesn't bear saying, but I think Set aside time, ideally every day, five days a week or something, but certainly a couple of times a week that's just dedicated to reading, well, reading, but reading something different, reading something that's not on the syllabus, reading something that's not, you know, contemporary and it's, you know, floating around Twitter and whatever else, everyone's got to read this, that and the other. Choose something, you know, almost like C.S. Lewis, you know, for every new book you read, read two old ones. Um, and so be reading the ancient stuff, be reading the older stuff. And especially if you want to do a PhD in medieval area or a patristic area, just get reading it. Stick yourself in in the middle of it all and just jump in and, you know, just understand you may read, you will read something that you think that wasn't so good. <laughs> but you will then read also things that you think this is this is now changing my life. This is this is something that I need to address and I've never thought in these categories. So just set I mean actually put it in your schedule. Put it in you know set an alarm and just do this, you know, in whatever whatever regularity you can and uh, if nothing else it it'll be it'll enrich you. So uh, practice if that's all right. Uh and I'll just follow up on what David said. Um because uh, so as not to just repeat what he said, because I think that's probably the best one is to is to read. But the other is to write something every day. Um, what what I suggest, and I, I tell my students this regularly, is uh, the first thing that you should do when you wake up is write something down, even before you read something. Um, make that the first thing. And it may be 10 words and it may be 50 words. And um, you're because and here's the reason why you don't know what you believe until you write it down. To, to every day begin with confession of what is true, what is the faith that you believe and that you participate in. And so to to whatever it is, whether you want to have uh, a regular a question, kind of a writing prompt that you want to follow, or if it's just whatever comes to your mind, just to get in the habit of making confession uh, of the gospel, of, uh, of, of our faith in whatever uh, way it happens to exhibit itself. So that I would I would say to write something down uh, every day and and preferably early. Um, you could study in patristics. Origin is is probably a very important topic right now. That uh, you know uh, here's the good news. All of the fathers are being reread, um, and for good reason. Over the last 25 years, this has started happening more rereading of the fathers, um, which is fine. So uh, the I, I think origin is is an important. Uh, one, um, which goes right into then hermeneutics, uh, what what they were doing and think they were doing with things like parted of exegesis and reading the Bible and how did they understand it, these things. Um, there's been a lot done with regard to say the rule of faith as a as a basis for hermeneutics. And so what you know what does that mean? But in terms of the actual application 
of reading these texts and engaging these texts, uh, hermeneutics would be very important. And, and while we could go on and on, another one would be anthropology, uh, theological anthropology. Um, you know, what, what is it? This is, a, this is a good and helpful topic, an important topic in particular, right? Because this is kind of the new sexy in terms of contemporary evangelical discussion, right? Um, where it's all about human flourishing and theological anthropology and what does this mean and what does it mean to be human and um, what what does uh, the faith say to us about being human? Well, there, this was this is all through uh, the fathers. This was a very important uh, issue of what does it mean to be human and what is God's intended end. To be three topics, I think you know when I I got into patristics through uh, the Reformation, uh, I was reading the Marburg Colloquy. Um, really wanted to do something on uh, on Marburg and the Eucharist, and um, having been a Southern Baptist, when there were these accusations of Apollinarianism and Nestorianism, those were two words I'd never heard before in my life. And when I went to go read and get some background on those things, having been a seminary student that never studied the Fathers, uh, when I went to read them, I was uh, I was hooked. Be and and I, and I think here's the reason why these theologians were striving to engage with Scripture as Christians. And that is what I felt like had been my tradition, good, bad, or indifferent, that there was this desire to engage with the Scriptures as a Christian. And I was just hooked. Um, theologians, and haven't put them down for 30 years now, and, and can't. Can't put them down. So uh, that's that's so those are some directions I think I would encourage students to start to take a look at. Awesome. Well, I, we want to thank both of you for joining us in the discussion. I, I, Dr. Hogg, remind me, can can students go do a Ph.D. with you at Phoenix or is there a way for them to do that or is it just master's with you? So at Phoenix Seminary, we have uh, it's the it's the master's. Um, I don't know if I should say this over the air because I'm at Phoenix Seminary, but I actually still have an agreement with Southeastern Seminary <laughs> where uh, I have a PhD. I have one PhD student now, and um, so there is, I suppose, that opportunity. But uh, but I guess we're not really in too too much competition because there's like 2,300 mile light years between us. Um, but yeah, so here at Phoenix Seminary, there's a THM, there's the MDiv, MAs, and so forth, but that's, we don't do a PhD. Awesome. Well, I, I imagine a lot of our listeners are interested in PhD work, so or THM work too. I know we've got a lot of students who are finishing their master's work, and so if you're looking to do a THM before a PhD, then you've got an option to go study with Dr. Hogg. I know you guys have other great theologians there. Dr. Doobie's there with you at Phoenix, so if you're not familiar, check him out. And Dr. McKinnon, obviously, here at Southeastern, where I live in Wake Forest, me and Brandon do, uh, I commend Southeastern heartily. I think all their programs are awesome. And you can go study patristics with Dr. McKinnon. And I think Dr. Bear, I mean, when we're recording this, he was here last week. So you'll have opportunities to meet all sorts of great scholars as you study here if you come to choose to go there. So I commend both of them. And thank you guys for taking the time. And as always, you all who are listening, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.